0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I want to talk about in this second section, I mean, we've got the big picture really in a way of, of sort of the motives of the Incarnation, but then what about the timing? Why has God become incarnate at the very time He did, or you might say, Aquinas says, why didn't He become incarnate at the very beginning of history? Why didn't God become, wait until the very end of history to become incarnate? So what is it about becoming, God becoming man in the middle of human history in all of its grayness, its messiness, uh, its imperfection, uh, in the midst of a great deal of moral turpitude? And that's connected, of course, to the question of how God saves us. I mean, if God enters into, you might say, the sort of mystery of human history, in the middle of its difficulties and and fragilities and struggles, how is he redeeming us? Or is he really redeeming us? If he's really redeeming us, why is there a perpetual problem or mystery of evil and death in the world? How does he overcome those things? And I'm going to add a question that's not in the Summa about why God became incarnate only once. That's not, that's, that, why aren't there multiple avatars of the divinity? That's a kind of Hindu question. I mean, it's a question in relation to uh, sort of the Hindu tradition that's worth asking, but which some modern theologians have speculated on. Okay. So if you go back to your handout, I have here uh, Article 5, and it's under, it's under Roman numeral 3. Why didn't God become incarnate at the beginning of history? And I've added, why in media res? Why in the midst of things? And I'm going again, as usual, right to the corpus, uh, let's say the body of the article, the answer. It was fitting that God should become incarnate immediately after sin. It was, nor was it fitting that God should become incarnate immediately after sin. In order, in other words, it's not reasonable in a certain way. It's not most perfect for God to have immediately redressed the situation of human sinfulness by becoming incarnate in the generation after our first parents uh, somehow severed themselves from the mystery of God's grace. First, on account of the manner of man's sin, which had come of pride. Hence, man was to be liberated in such a manner that he might be humbled, and see how he stood in need of a deliverer. For first of all, God left man under the natural law, with the freedom of his will, in order that he might know his natural strength. And when he failed in it, he received the law, whereupon, by the fault not of the law, but of his nature, the disease gained strength. So that having recognized his infirmity, he might cry out for a physician and beseech the aid of grace. There's a lot here. When Aquinas talks about the natural law, he's not first and foremost thinking about external legal precepts. No. He's thinking about deep inclinations. I mean, Aquinas has this place where he says the deepest inclinations in us are the inclination to preserve and safeguard human life. To live in community and seek friendship and to seek the ultimate truth about reality, including the truth about God. So these are, in some way, inalienable features of human existence. He says be, human beings cannot not want to be happy. They can do incredibly ridiculous things in order to try to con- convince themselves that this is the way to be happy. And if they don't find happiness, they can try to end their own lives as a, as a, as a remedy to relieve, relieve themselves from the burden of unhappiness. But the, the drive for happiness is at the core of the human being, and it's inalienable. And it filters out through the desire to preserve our own life, to preserve ourselves from pain, to advance in what's good for our own natural kind, and to form bonds of friendship, to live in community and dependence upon one another. We, we can't really be happy without friends and without healthy some kind of healthy relationships with other people. And there's vast webs of interdependence that grow up from that through family life, through society, through work and education, and he says ultimately we have a natural desire to want to know what it's all about. The search for wisdom, the search for explanation, drives the human intellect. So that whether we end up mistakenly thinking that atheism is the answer to what it's all about, that there is no, no explanation other than material causes and physical things, or whether we have mistaken views about the deity. The truth of the matter is we are always asking why questions, or at least we're able always. We're always able to ask why questions. Okay, so that's the natural law. And the thing is, in the midst of all that, we do gain sparks of insight into moral truth. I mean, even the, most, the person most bereft of moral compass or moral orientation has some capacity to grasp the good and to avoid evil it's really hard to be consistently evil about everything. So, I mean, we, we can make big mistakes about some things. It's very hard to to always make big mistakes about everything. There's like deeply ingrained patterns in us so that even people who might tell a big lie might come back and think about it afterwards and think that they have a remorse of the conscience and the life of virtues and vices life of virtues is to ward off vices. And to become more stable and fixed in the good, like thinking, you know, I told that big lie, I have remorse of conscience. I think I should try to build up a habit of always being truthful in all circumstances, even when it's a little awkward socially. Because I don't really want to get caught in that kind of behavior pattern again. So I'm going to try to build up the habit of being a truth teller. That doesn't mean all truth is good to say, but it means that when I do say things, I'm going to try to say things that are true. So you can go from basic inclinations to kind of sparks of moral insight to building up virtues. But when you live life historically in real time, you, re- you realize how frail that is in yourself and other people. And that's often even with baptism. So his claim is that uh, he, after the fall, it's not that God left the human race to itself. He did give, Aquinas thinks God gave grace from the beginning to all human beings, initiatives of grace. But that he also left human beings, uh, he let them experience their poverty because the original sin is a sin of pride, the human race has a deep inclination towards pride. All of us have a deep inclination towards pride to not want to have to depend upon God, to admit moral um, our moral faults, to accept our dependency upon other people and our need to grow in understanding, often when we're confused and we are often confused and in moral strength when we're weak and we are often weak, right? So, The experience, you know, this idea is that it's not just that you let one individual, you know, the direct descendants of the first parents learn their fragilities. It's that you let a human civilization grow up where the human race knows that it's poor and weak. And Augustine doesn't think God's a sadist at all in this. He thinks God's, Aquinas thinks God's very merciful in doing this because he says, Letting human beings, he says elsewhere, letting human beings experience the frailty of their moral state and even the mortality of death allows them to uh, find God. If God had left us strong, then we would feel that we could live our life forever without God. And living your life forever without God is a state we call hell. It could begin already in this life by rupturing with God definitively. So the letting us experience the limits of our nature is not willing us to be miserable. It's letting us go off and be ourselves without God long enough to realize it's not working out. Right? So that's the kind of big idea. Now, this is also true of course, often in our own lives individually, that there's a kind of economy of mercy where God, if we decide we want to have nothing to do with the mystery of Christ, we find out through hitting the hard corners of reality, that it has its sharp edges and uh, we acquire, you know, knowledge of our own limitation and misery. But, you know, the good news is in this way of thinking that there's a time, there's a time of redemption and we will come to that time or we can come to that time with God. So time is both in many ways uh, a troublesome uh, um, Burden you have to withstand the duration of your existence and there's lots of moments of maybe emptiness or boredom or bemusement or uh, Frustration, but it's also a time gives opportunities of finding God of encountering God and the incarnation is the time God gave to the human race of coming to realize they could be saved the time of finding a savior okay, so that's, it's an argument from fittingness. It's not saying he couldn't have become incarnate right away. He could have become incarnate right away. But there's a kind of way that God uses human history and human time in our own lives individually and collectively as a whole human race. So we look out across the broad expanse of history and we say, well, Christ is a pretty good option. I've read Socrates. He's great. Plato's wonderful. Aristotle's better. But Christ is the best. You look across the horizon of history and you see the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as the, the, the lighthouse on the horizon of history, giving perspective to everything, casting a light upon the whole landscape. Second, um, he says, on account of the order of fu- furtherance in the good, whereby we proceed from imperfection to perfection. And so the apostle says, yet that was not first, which is spiritual, but which is natural. Afterwards, that which is spiritual, the first man was of the earth, earthy, the second man from heaven, heavenly. So that's a kind of idea of how God uses history pedagogically to teach us to move from the imperfect to the perfect. It's true even on a natural level. He doesn't say this, but even on the natural level, we move from the imperfect to the perfect. Paul famously says, when I was a child, I uh, did childish things. Now I'm an adult. I do adult things. I, I'm going to feed you the milk of children, but when you grow a bit greater, stronger as a Christian, I'll feed you the strong meat of Christianity. Right? So the, the human body matures, the human person matures, we move from less you know perfect state to more perfect state. But God recapitulates that in human history and in our own lives in the order of grace. We can move from the less perfect state of being a human being according to nature to being a human being according to supernature or according to grace, to live the life of Christ in our own lives. Again, it's just an argument from fittingness. God has done it this way. Aquinas said, God did become human in the midst of history. So why did he do it? Well, one thing is it's a kind of pedagogy that the human race can move progressively from the imperfect to the perfect. Thirdly, on account of the dignity of the incarnate word, but when the fullness of time has come, a a gloss, that means a a medieval commentary, a common commentary on the Bible in the Middle Ages, says the greater judge of who was coming, the more numerous was the band of heralds who ought to have preceded him. Now that is a very interesting kind of comment about the Old Testament. He's just saying, look at how God did things. He sent prophets for a long time to prepare. And so when God begins to act in the world, he sort of starts in first, you know, motifs, you might say, of a, it's kind of like he's thought in, a, in terms of a musical symphony that God would build with a s- simpler melody or simpler harmonies. And then he builds up to the final movement of the symphony. There's a kind of fittingness there because it teaches you to hear the music. Okay, God is speaking through prophets. God is building on what he's done in Moses. God is now speaking in Isaiah. And the crescendo and the sort of whole symphony happen in the New Testament with Christ and the apostolic college and then the beginning of the church. Uh, So the thing builds and it's a way you begin to see how God is doing things in history. Fourthly, lest the fervor of faith should cool by the length of time, for the charity of many will grow cold at the end of the world. Now that's in the New Testament itself. In Luke 18, it is written, yet the Son of Man, when he comes, shall he, shall, uh, shall he find, thank you, faith on earth. That's the gospel actually from today for the Mass. So it's the idea that even when God gives the plenitude of the revelation, he still allows us to, refuse the light. That's the first words of John's gospel. In the prologue, he says the light was coming into the world by which all men are enlightened. But he says the, the darkness did not comprehend it. And to those who he came, many rejected him. So there's a weird mystery that even when God reveals himself in the incarnation, it still engages with our human freedom. And there's a certain fittingness that the kind of battle between light and darkness goes on through history. And God doesn't give all the light at the beginning. He gives the light in the midst of our darkness, and then we, we can begin to uh, assimilate to it or refuse it. And the mystery of the church is this kind of mystery of the acceptation or refusal of the light down through time of Christ's friends and of those who feel threatened by Christ. I mean, Christ is a figure of division, he's also the greatest figure of unity, he's the definitive figure of unity but it's, it can't be hidden also that the gospel divides sometimes. Now, the fifth reason I've given you is actually about why he didn't become, it's from the next article, the last article, should God have become incarnate only at the end of the world? And there he says, um, he says no, and he has a lot of the reasons, but I just, it's a pithy, this slight this sentence here at the end is one of the most beautiful statements of this entire treatise, this first question. He says, the work of incarnation to be to be viewed, I think it is to be, so should be, is to be viewed, not, me, not as merely the terminus of a movement from imperfection to perfection, but also as a principle of perfection to human nature. Now, I'll just read it again. The work of incarnation is to be viewed not as merely the terminus, the term of a movement from imperfection to perfection, but also as a principle of perfection. And when he says principle, he means a cause. He's talking about an engine. So he's saying, why didn't Christ become incarnate at the end of the world? Because the incarnation has effects in history. It changes the world. So God waited long enough, as it were, so that we realized our need for a savior. But he, came in, he became incarnate in the middle of things so that he could change us. There is a principle of perfection at work in the world. And that per- principle of perfection is Christ incarnate, uh, crucified and raised from the dead. And so the Christ acts in the world, in the church, in the sacraments to perfect the lives of the saints and to render uh, new life possible for the human race. That's a beautiful little phrase there. He became human to be a principle of perfection to human nature. Right. So it's to give us on the great horizon of history, this sort of anchor of hope that God has sort of uh, uh, taken territory uh, and and started to expand his, his kingdom this is a great image that C.S. Lewis used when he was giving the lectures that became mere Christianity in the in the ambience of the Second World War, where he talked about the incarnation as the beachhead of God landing on Normandy and and expanding, you know. So it's this idea that, you know, we're not really in tune with God, but he's come. He's come among us in a certain way to conquer us, to conquer the territory and uh, the, the incarnation happens in the middle of time as this first beachhead of the church coming out to expand the kingdom of Christ among human beings. It's an interesting image. Okay. Admittedly, very British. <laughs> Why did God not become incarnate multiple on multiple occasions? That would be convenient, right? I mean, there would be a Jesus in every age. Well, he had a different name and we would meet him on the street. There would be a lot of crucifixions of God. Now that's not a question, Aquinas. Actually, the question Aquinas asks is, could God have done it? He does think that if the Son of God became incarnate multiple times, that each of those individual human natures would have been the same person. Right? So you'd have three people, for example, and they would all be the one person of the Son made man. That's very unfitting. That's weird. He thinks God could have done it, but it just makes so right away, actually there, you do have one of the that's the seed of one of the modern answers to this question. This is treated by, among others, Charles Journet in the 20th century. And uh Charles Journet was a Swiss cardinal, great Catholic theologian and atomist. And um Journet says, uh it's got to do with knowing the unique identity of God. God became human only once so that we would know the one God who there is in the most effective means possible. If God had become incarnate multiple times, we would be able to envisage God under, as it were under different faces. And you could imagine the the rivals of, uh, expl- rival explanations. Well, no, I mean, I think he's, I think he's the incarnate God. No, I think he's the incarnate Lord. Yeah. And you, you can create a kind of, um, I mean, it's an argument from fittingness, because God could, I suppose, give you the grace to make people clear on this, but the danger is that you get a kind of implicit polytheism. If there's only one God and God becomes incarnate once, then the one incarnation allows you best to know who the one God is. And so, it's a sort of fittingness to the one God becoming incarnate once. That's sort of Journay's argument. Uh, It's interesting, I've talked to missionaries in India who said that, you know, they'll talk about the incarnation, and very pious and devout Hindus will say to them, you know, but we have many incarnations. I mean, I have no problem saying that Jesus is incarnation of God, but we have many manifestations of God. Why do you want to be so limiting? You know, and it, it makes sense in a certain way. It's sometimes called by modern theologians the scandal of particularity, that it's scandalous that God has chosen one people in particular to be his chosen people, that is to say Israel, and that he should be, choose to become this one human being. Christ. But the scandal of particularity also is part of the true Christian universality. When you have multiple savior figures, what you get is clannic polarities of salvation. I'm from this place. We get saved by that God. You are from that place. You get saved by that God. But strangely, Judaism through Catholicism gives us the idea of That God has taken on this particular pathway into the world in Christ, through the Israelite prophets and in Christ, so that all of humanity can be reconciled universally in the one saving truth of God. So that Catholicity, Catholic in Greek means universal. The universality of Christ is connected to the scandal of particularity. It's the most universal religion, and it's the most incarnate, particularist understanding of religion. God only became this one person, this one human being, born of this one mother. But these, this person, Christ, has relevance as savior for all human beings. This has also to do with the unity of the Catholic Church, that the unity of the religion founded by Christ is a remedy to the fragmentation of human division, human uh, religious confusion. If you look at human history, there's deep confusion in human religion i mean there are a lot of barbar there are a lot of beautiful things in, in, in non catholic religions and things that we can learn from and engage with but there's also been a lot of religious barbarism of course the catholic church has not been freed from religious barbarism but the idea that uh, is is that sometimes the, the the barbarism gets into the principles of the religion itself i'm thinking of things like human sacrifice which has been a predominant uh, practice in in a lot of archaic religions it's gone now from the world by and large. But it's gone now from the world, by and large, because of Christian missionaries, among other things. Now, that's not a very politically correct thing to say today, but it doesn't mean that it's false. So, I mean, Christ has, in many ways, purified and elevated human religion. And its just last argument is from the unity of the human race. I mean, it, it, it's a way in which Christ, being the, sometimes the theologians call him the omega point, the final, de- that's like in Greek letters, alpha is the first letter, omega is the final Letter And Christ says in the Re- book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I was dead and I am now alive. And because he is in the resurrection, the final point of the resurrections are a kind of anticipation of the of the end of creation, of the sort of final purpose of creation, that God is going to redeem the world in the resurrection from the dead. If Christ is truly risen from the dead, then he's the beginning of the new creation And in that sense, he gives perspective to the human race in a way that one man alone does, one person alone. Actually, the resurrection of the Virgin Mary, her bodily assumption into heaven, makes her also the new Eve. So you have the new Adam and the new Eve, who are this kind of embodiment of this new creation. Okay, how does the incarnation relate to the mystery of the atonement? We have alluded to this, but now I want to tackle it a little bit more directly. I mean, I can't... So there's, a, there's a lot in Aquinas on this subject matter. I think I gave you—yes, I gave you the third objection. So what I did here on, in, the, in your text—do you have, see, objection three there? Yeah. What I did in this text is I gave you one of the objections. Then I gave you the said contra, where he uses the argument from authority. Then I gave you the body of the argument, and then I gave you the response to that one objection. Whether he asks in question—this is—now we've moved to the question 46 of, the, of this treatise on, the, of, on Christ— and this is about Christ's sufferings in the Passion. The, the larger question is about what Christ underwent in the Passion. And he asked, this, he asked this question, whether it was necessary for Christ to suffer for the deliverance of the human race. So you see how it's connected to the Incarnation. Did God have to become incarnate? Well, kind of, not totally. It was highly fitting. Does he need to suffer? No, but it's going to be very fitting that he does. Like how is the suffering of Christ in the Incarnation, in the, in the, in the Passion, related to our Redemption? So there's an objection here that's helpful. It's written in the psalm. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth, but it does not seem necessary that he should suffer on the part of divine mercy, which which as it bestows gifts freely. So it appears to condone debts without satisfaction. I mean, God, this is the objection that the gentleman uh, was was posing in the last question and answer series. Uh, It's basically Look, God's merciful. He doesn't need to ask Christ to suffer on our behalf. Yes. Right nor again on the part of divine justice, according to which man deserved everlasting con- condemnation. He means hell. Therefore, it does not seem necessary that God, sh- that Christ should have suffered for man's deliverance. The second objection is like, he could have just damned us. So it's not really necessary because God's, I mean, God could do that. God is infinitely just. He could just hold us under the pain of eternal justice. And that would be the only side of God we ever saw. Right? I answer that as the philosopher teaches that's Aristotle. He calls Aristotle, that's his nickname for Aristotle. There are se- several acceptations of the word necessary. It was not necessary for Christ to suffer from necessity of compulsion. Either on God's part, who ruled that Christ should suffer, or on Christ's own part, who suffered voluntarily. So it's not like God's saying, oh, I've got to be merciful to them, I've got to be merciful to them, I'm to become incarnate. No, or, you know, I've got to be just, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm holding fast to my justice. You know, God has done things freely. He does them freely by goodness and wisdom. Like he, when he do, acts freely, he acts out of his goodness and his wisdom. Nor did Christ have to, Christ did not take on the passion in his human will, not, nor the, ni- neither as God nor in his human will does Christ take on his passion by compulsion. Right? God the Father really wants to do this. God the Son's not so sure. no, no. No, there's one God and the God they have, there's one will. Anyway, But it was necessary of the end proposed, and this can be accepted in three ways. So again, this is a kind of necessity of fittingness. First on all, first of all, on our part, we've been delivered by his passions. He says, was it necessary? Well, for us, it was, because that's the way God saved us. Right? So he could have saved us otherwise, but given that he saved us this way, we should sort of say it's necessary for us. You know, it's a a kind of it's a it's a kind of a qualified understanding of necessity. The son of man must be lifted up, says Jesus, that whoever believes in him may not perish, may have eternal life, life everlasting. So notice he gets his argument there from Jesus himself. The son of man must be lifted up. So, So Jesus says it's necessary in the sense that Jesus says that he must go to his death so that we can be saved. We've been saved because Jesus went to his death. So, in that sense, it's necessary. The Lord willed to take on the mystery of the atonement and the cross to save us. The Son of Man must be lifted up. It's a a conditional necessity. If God wills to save us this way, then Christ, in his human life, in his human nature, has to accept the burden of the crucifixion. Secondly, on Christ's part, who merited the glory of being exalted through the resurrection, through the lowliness of his passion... And to this must be referred Luke 24. Ought not Christ to suffered these things so as to enter into his glory? That's Jesus. That word is from the the road to Emmaus. That's the resurrected Christ walking with the disciples who don't recognize him. And he begins to to sort of um, um, rebuke them and saying, you have not understood what's happening. Did you not understand that the Messiah must suffer so that he could enter into his glory? Now, that's, again, a kind of argument from fittingness. There's a fittingness that the Messiah should suffer. It's scandalous to them the Messiah was crucified. They can't believe in Jesus. He said he would save us. He said he would save Israel, and now he's died. And he says to them, did you not understand that this must happen this way? That it was an atoning death, that the death was meaningful, so that you could enter into redemption. And then he breaks bread, and they feel their hearts burning within them. It's a Eucharistic image. So that we find the risen Christ in the Eucharist. Thirdly, on God's part, whose determination regarding the passion of Christ foretold in the scriptures and prefigured in the observances the Old Testament had to be fulfilled, that's also from conditional necessity. God has already started down the road of the atonement uh, early from early on in the covenant with the people of Israel. So already in the mystery of Abraham and Isaac, in the mystery of the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law, you have prefigurations of the one saving uh, death of Christ. So that given that he'd already started down this road of redeeming us in this way, then he's committed to it, so to speak. Once he makes promises to Israel, he's going to fulfill those promises. Once he promises to redeem the human race, he's going to redeem the human race. And again, he, he, what he's doing, he's making sense of Jesus' own words. When Christ talks about this necessity of suffering his passion, he's saying he's, he's do, he must suffer to merit our salvation. He must suffer... In order to give us eternal life, He must suffer in order to fulfill the Old Testament teachings. Uh, so it's a kind of internal, a necessity internal, you might say, to a divine logic or divine wisdom that God has decided to redeem us in a certain way. And once He commits to that, He follows through on it. And there's a certain beauty in it. It's a beauty of Christ's lowliness, and it's a beauty of Christ's uh, exaltation. God decided in the cro- in the in the mystery of His own crucifixion, God willed to to enter into our human lowliness in solidarity with us in death and even to suffer uh, at the hands of of human beings and sinners so that he could uh, be exalted and become the principle of our salvation. It's kind of what I was going back to earlier with Julian Norwich. God decided to enter into what was the worst of situations that we could do in order to bring about the best possible good to bless us. And once he entered into this, you might say, beautiful logic of salvation, he's committed to it. And Christ is committed to it. And you see it in Christ's own words in the Gospels. Now, he replies to the third objection. And this is a very interesting and beautiful teaching that I alluded to in the answers to last session, the questions in last session. That man should be delivered by Christ's passion was in keeping with both his mercy and his justice. Okay, so... That God should become incarnate and that God should redeem us through the passion of Christ is both merciful and just. It's in keeping with his justice because by his passion, Christ made satisfaction or atonement for the sin of the human race. And so man was set free by Christ's justice. And so God became our brother in our human life so that we could become his brother in the life of grace, so that we could profit from what Christ has done and be joined to him in his charity in his obedience, in his love, uh, and in his mercy, so that we as Christians might belong to Christ in his grace and partake of his victory. And with his mercy, for since man of himself could not make atonement or satisfy for the sin of all human nature, as was said above, God gave him his son to satisfy for him, according to Romans 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood that beautiful phrase of paul is really rich with theology propitiation means a kind of intercessor or one who offers what is required to god so christ made an offering of himself to god so that we who believe in him have faith in his blood might be redeemed by his grace and he says this is the famous line this came of more copious mercy than if he had forgiven sins without this satisfaction and so it says in Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy for his exceeding charity wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together in Christ. It's the most profound depths of God's mercy that he's communicated to us the life of justice in Christ. Now, when we hear justice, most of the time as Americans, people in America, we're going to think in terms of legal justice, um, almost monetary terms, you know, I paid that much, I get this much remuneration, um, maybe in terms of the equal human rights, okay, I deserve this, he deserves that, she deserves this, he deserves that, and those are, those are instances of justice. But in the New Testament, this kind of justice that's being talked about is a mystery. It's a mystery. There's a justice in Christ that we can, we can kind of understand, it's a, but it's a mystery of um, being, it's something like the justice that's present in friendship. Aristotle says, you can be just towards other people without being their friends, but you cannot be friends with someone without being just toward them. So justice is a condition for friendship, and justice finds its perfection in friendship. So like if I'm friends with someone, but they keep, I don't know what, stealing, my, my, stealing food out of my refrigerator I don't know what it is people do to each other. You know that could upset you. Um, borrowing money from me, they don't pay. Or in the Dominican Order, especially grievous, most terrible injustice: borrowing books you don't give back. <laughs> that is a terrible injustice. You can't be friends with those people. <laughs> if they're your friends, if you loan them the books, they bring them back. Injustice, right? Uh, otherwise, you have to live in continual mercy towards those people. Mm. <laughs> anyway so the idea is that you know we it's we can live how do we live in friendship with god best not only through, ju- through sheer mercy but it's a greater mercy when god gives us the justice in christ the grace in christ this mystery of restoration of our dignity and grace that we can live in friendship with god i mean that's what it's really about in the end the atonement is about restoring our friendship with god okay i'm going to finish with this last article this is from the question on baptism uh, whether baptism should remedy all the ills of this life. And I'm putting this here at the end to ask why does moral and physical evil exist in the world after the incarnation? This is the magic wand objection. I'm very happy, oh, oh God, I'm very happy you became human. I'm very happy you wanted to give me eternal life. I'm very happy that you are interested in, in curing all the remedies and the ills of this life. Mm-hmm. However, I would just like to ask you to do it all immediately. That I not have to live in the obscurity of faith, suffer it all in this world, or uh, be subject to any doubts about your provident goodness and the fact that you're going to overcome all the terrible wicked ills that are subject that the world is subject to, and that in fact I'm contributing to daily, by, in, in small and large ways. Right? That's it's basically that objection, which is the most important. You know, kind of that is a you know it's a very serious one. Okay and aquinas's answer is going to be well there's a mystery of part of cooperation you cooperate the atonement the incarnation and the atonement are also about us living with christ in the midst of human suffering and he who is crucified will give us the strength or you know to endure conformity to the cross in view of conformity to the resurrection So this is the part where the fact that we have sinned collectively as a human race and individually as individual persons does not mean we get off the hook. Yes, he's done everything to save us, but we have to kind of appropriate that. And part of the way we appropriate that is through uh, living in Christ in the midst of our own human suffering and the suffering that others uh, are the origin of for us, too. And we can suffer gravely at the hands of others. That doesn't mean that God wills evil. Okay. Aquinas thinks God never wills moral evil either directly or indirectly. It's not even that he just like tolerates it because he thinks it's somehow good for you. God just tolerates e- moral evil only because he respects free will. And it's always contrary to God's will in a certain sense, Aquinas says. like, moral, Every moral evil is a transgression of the divine will. But God does not annihilate us after we uh, do acts of moral evil. That, that has huge consequences because that means God leaves us all on a long leash. I mean, if you have free will and God respects your free will, then he'll allow us to do every evil of which free will is capable. And if you look at the history of human nature, it's a history of human beings in many ways doing all the evils they're capable of. Right? So, I mean, God respects human freedom and he allows human beings to do great evil. He will remedy all of that, either by mercy or by justice. But he is not causing it or willing it. That's very important to say as a preface. So in the midst of that, he says, I answer that baptism has the power to take away the penalties. When he says penalties, it's a word in Latin, pene, the sufferings. It means sufferings. It can mean punishments. It, it, it doesn't have to mean things that, it doesn't mean God penalizing us. It means, or at least not primarily, it means primarily the things we've done to ourselves through sin, starting from the original sin of Adam, that the fallen world. Like God doesn't take away all the sufferings of, this, of the fallen world. The baptism does not take away all the fault, the penal the, the sufferings, the the, the fallen character of the present life. Yet it does. It sorry. It, has, it says baptism does have the power to take them away, but it does not take them away during the present life. But by its power, they will be taken away from the just in the resurrection when the mortal puts on immortality. And he says, "Now that's reasonable." He say, "No, it's not reasonable. I want you to take them all away right now. Uh, I don't like this." Uh, deferring everything to life after death. That just sounds too... It's not good enough, and it's too good to be true. And Okay. He's going to say, okay, but it is actually reasonable. First, because by baptism, man is incorporated into Christ and is made his member. He's made a member of the mystical body of the church. Consequently, it is fitting that what takes place in the head should be take place also in the member of the body, incorporated. Now, from the very beginning of his conception... Christ was full of grace and truth, yet he had a body capable of suffering, which through his passion and death was raised up to a life of glory in the resurrection. Wherefore, a Christian receives grace in baptism as to his soul, but he retains a body subject to suffering so that he may suffer for Christ therein, yet at length he will be raised up to a life of impassibility. Impassibility means freedom from suffering. This is a very deep statement. What he's saying is the grace of Christ is given to you primarily in the spiritual faculties of the soul, in your intellect and will. The primary way you participate already in redemption is through knowledge and love. Knowledge of Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Love of Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Love of your neighbor in Christ. And you live that in the midst of a body of suffering, which means also a psychology, sensate emotional psychology, which is largely of our animal nature. It's good, but it's part of the animal in us. Your bo- animal body, your psych- with the psyche, with the temperament you have, whether it's ecstatic or melancholic, whatever it is, you live out the mystery of your love for Christ and your knowledge of Christ in that human body, which is subject to death. Why? Well, because this is the time to choose love. This is the time to choose the truth. That's why the martyr is, in a way, the epitome of the Christian. The martyr ten- bears witness to the truth of Christ in his or her mortal body unto death. And in a certain way, our time in this life is a time of conformity to the passion of Christ, not just of external conformity, but of the, it's the deeper conformity is to use the, the sufferings that we are inevitably exposed to and the opportunities to remedy the sufferings of others and to serve others as opportunities to grow vitally in charity. The project of this life in Christ, because of the incarnation and the redemption is the project of growing in the knowledge and love of God and neighbor. It's the, the life of grace has a vitality to it. It's not just a once and for all thing. It's a living seed. It's a principle of eternal life in us. And the seed grows. And when we cooperate with Christ in charity and in truth in the course of our lives, we can grow in charity. And if we do that in the midst of a world of suffering and death, we actually have. An almost infinite number of opportunities to live out the mercy, the charity, and the truth of Christ in the midst of a world of suffering. And to become agents of Christ, to remedy the sufferings of others, to bring them before God in prayer, to worship God in life and in death, and to become witnesses and martyrs of Christ in the midst of the world of suffering that we live in. So it's a cross-shaped redemption We are being saved in our minds and hearts, and we are being saved in the midst of bodies subject to suffering. But it's also a salvation that's a living principle in us, where we can give ourselves and grow in Christ daily. And he says, hence, the apostle says, that he that raised up Jesus from the dead shall quicken or enliven us, also our mortal bodies, because of the spirit that dwells in us. The body will be raised and glorified in the general resurrection. That's a Christian belief. But in this life, it's through mystery of conformity to crucifixion that we proportion ourselves, already our ready ourselves for the life of resurrection. We are conformed to the death and the resurrection of Christ. He says, secondly, it's suitable for our spiritual training, namely in order that by fighting against concupiscence, that's an old-fashioned, it's, a, it's an important word, but it's an old-fashioned uh, medieval word for like not just lust, but possessiveness, kind of the the desires of uh, of of sensual possessiveness of the body, and other defects to which he is subject, man may receive a crown of victory. Aquinas says it's harder for us to be chaste than it would have been had we never fallen because of the wounds of original sin, but it's more meritorious for us to be chaste uh, than it would have been for Adam and Eve had they never sinned. So he says the struggle with our human sexuality in this world, which I don't know if anyone's told you, but there's a lot of people who have struggles with like being chastity. There's some issues there with our human race. So, uh, you know, grace helps us a great deal. Regular sacramental confession helps us a great deal make progress. But what he's saying is, yeah, it's a battle, but the battle is noble. And so fighting the battle is part of like the spiritual warfare of the human being. And he's thinking beyond uh, human sexual issues to, like, just the, more generally, the growth, the struggle against vice. Like, we live in this time where we can actually grow in merit. Uh, the Christ, when I talk about the incarnation being a principle of perfection, Christ, I Aquinas mean, thinks that Christ's perfection deploys in the sacraments and can instigate uh, moments of perfection in us to help us, in the midst of our miseries and limits and sins, become uh, more conformed to the charity of Christ and more noble. And that's, like, you know, in an interesting way, it gives life meaning because it makes life a project worth living. You know, life is not just a one humdrum, passing of time through banal events or just, you know, a string of addictions and sins from one to the next uh, or, you know, bad mistakes and prudentially questionable judgments. It's life as actually it's a project of fighting to live the, the life of the redeemed, to live in Christ. And we're all qualified eminently for this because the only qualification necessary to seek perfection in Christ is to be a sinner. So if you are not a sinner, you're not qualified to live this. I'm sorry, you're in the wrong place. You should go and be with the perfect. Uh, I suspect you're probably all in the right place, and uh, the rest of the human race as as well. Thirdly, this was unsuitable lest man might see. This is my favorite one. This is unsuitable. This was suitable. That you get baptized, but you still have to struggle and you still suffer and die. This is suitable. Lest men seek to be baptized for the sake of impassibility in the present life and not for the sake of the glory of eternal life. Wherefore, the apostle says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. His point is, if you got baptized and then you didn't die, like everybody lined up to get baptized. Right. I'd like to be baptized. Right. I mean, you know, now you would have to give conditions. Well, actually, you also have to be chased. You have to obey God. You have to do, well. I mean, okay, but then I won't die, right? So, I mean, if it were, if if God gave some kind of, um, you might call it history-ending grace, you know, kind of the end of the world graces, punctually to whoever was baptized, it would it would cause us to have different motives, and those motives could be, in fact, fundamentally selfish. And here's the idea: is that God is actually going for the heart. So being subject to death, Augustine says God has left us in the throes of human mortality so that we don't suffer uh, eternal death. So we're subject to human death in time so that we will seek remedy in God and not be subject to eternal death. And Pascal says God has given enough light to every man that each one shall be without excuse. But he leaves enough obscurity in the life of each man that we must choose freely to love. So that's this idea that, you know, there's a kind of a a discernment being made in the life of each of us to seek the truth and try to find the truth and live in the truth freely and so baptism doesn't do something magical it gives people the strength to bear witness to Christ and to become you might say truth bearers in the world but the decision to be baptized the decision to live for Christ even unto death the decision to bear witness to Christ even unto death is a decision made in freedom And so it's made in the, you might call it still in the obscurity of faith, the the non-evidence of faith. God likes the obscurity of faith much more than we do because it tests the metal of our hearts and it purifies our hearts. And it makes it's a way in which God teaches us to serve him freely and not to serve him out of uh, uh, mixed motives of, of, of gain Or, you know, through manipulative practices of trying to get something from him. It it, it causes us to serve him in absolute sincerity of heart. So the mystery is going on, and it's also part of, part of the mystery is going on is the mystery of the purification of our hearts by conformity to Christ over time, wherein we give everything. We give everything to God in faith, and God gives us everything in Christ. So it really is a mystery of shared love and not a mystery of utilitarian usage or utilitarian friendship with God, right? A quid pro quo relationship. Yeah. Now that's challenging, but it's also very beautiful. It's like God has called what's most noble in us to Himself to love Him freely and to love the truth freely.